this podcast, we will be focusing on the Weird War Tales comic book series published by DC Comics from 1971 to 1983. And on this episode, we are going to take a look at Weird War Tales number 29. There's no retroactive history this time around, but Rich does have an intel report for you. Probably more weird history than weird war, but close enough. Manifest Destiny, an ongoing series since 2013 by Image, which will probably be complete by the time this episode drops. Written by Chris Dingus, art by Matthew Roberts. In 1803, Captain Meriwether Lewis and Lieutenant William Clark were commissioned by President Thomas Jefferson to explore the uncharted United States westward after the territory was acquired via the Louisiana Purchase with France. We discussed this in Operation Blue a little bit. This is the story of the monsters they discover on their journey. There are eight trade paperback collections of the series out there. I've been leaning on Max for a while to pick this title up. Uh, Manifest Destiny was a widely held cultural belief in the 19th century United States that American settlers were destined to expand across North America, though the term itself wasn't coined until 1845. Lewis and Clark truly had no idea what they were going to discover on this trip. They could have found monsters. As an aside, uh, Fort Lewis, Washington, now Joint Base Lewis McCord, uh, which is where I spent a week in April of 2022, is named after Captain Lewis. Yeah, and Rich has been leaning on me to read that series. And I did read the first trade on Comixology back when Comixology didn't suck before Amazon recreated the app and made it useless. And I really did like it. And I, I need to find a way to get back into the series. It's just... My go-to used to be Comixology Unlimited, borrow a couple of trades, read them up, and if I like it, continue on. But now I got to find another way to read Manifest Destiny. But I, I got to concur. Uh, that first trade was incredibly surprising. And being me, I took a long time to get around to it, even after Rich suggested it. But I, I got to say, based on that first story, uh, the first six issues or whatever, definitely recommended for anybody who digs this comic book series or this show. So speaking of shows, we're going to take a little break to promote somebody else's awesome podcast. And when we get back, we'll dig into the issue at hand. And action. It's Fade Out. Hosted by film fanatic Rob Kelly and a roster of special guests, Fade Out will examine the final films of Hollywood's brightest lights. Part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. are back so as i said at the top we're going to be taking a look at weird war tales number 29 this time around and rich is here to hit you with the cover detail art by luis dominguez someday this comic will cost more than 20 cents but today is not that day under a huge burning sun on a clear blue day a patrol of German Africa Corps soldiers carrying bayoneted rifles is shocked when a skeletal Arab nomad with an ammo bandolier crossed over his chest, riding a horse and waving a sword, bursts out of the ground directly in front of them. In the foreground and distance, two more horses are beginning to emerge from the sand. Cover date, September 1974, date of release, June 25th, 1974, Killjoy. A red swastika on a powder blue cap of the closest Africa Corps soldier? Ick. Also, the Germans are supposed to be carrying, at this time of the war, 
a car 98k rifle which does not have the detachable magazine visible on the rifle the second soldier is carrying it kind of looks like a lee enfield rifle that british commonwealth forces used i suppose it could be a battle capture but that would be highly unlikely in this scenario back to the cnc uh, the orange on the weird lettering matches the sun well i like the unshaven bug-eyed look the german closest to the viewer has also, using blue coloring on the ghostly nomad for shading is a great artistic touch Dominguez uses here. The horse has this wild-eyed look as it lunges forward, and the sand is flying as it does so. The nomad is impressive as hell. Yeah, agreed about the logo coloring. Uh, the coloring on the entire page is is indeed mostly great. I say mostly because, well, this is partially a layout issue too, but the sand on the bottom of the image is too open for me and leaves the cover feeling strangely empty. That and the spectral horse in the foreground, or at least the nose of a spectral horse in the foreground, being a different color than the other two spectral horses is distracting and kind of pointless. The actual drawing, of course, is excellent, but I feel this one needed another pass in the layout shop, I think. You so, know, I was um, actually, after I read that in, in the script, I was, I was actually looking back, looking at, the, looking at the cover again, and I think it got an explanation for that. The two horses are blue shaded, to kind of blend into the sky the one in the foreground is brown shaded to kind of blend into the sand so maybe they're like you can see through them visibly they're, they're like ghosts ghosts so the color of the sand color of the sky they, they match up I'm, I'm, I'm reaching it's possible i don't know <laughs> yeah i'm gonna call an audible there and say <laughs> but uh yes, I don't that's know. just me that's just me i can be a crank about little tiny things like this that that stick in my craw and maybe everyone else is just like nah nah you're nitpicking and i grant you that is possible so with the cover out of the way rich is gonna fill you guys in give you the lowdown on the first actual story inside this issue Yep, as has been uh, warned uh, before, I am going to be talking a lot on this episode. So Max is just going to go uh, get himself a cup of coffee and just kick back and relax, put his feet up. <laughs> okay, breaking point. Eight pages, script by Jack Olek, art by Ernie Chan. The Major was a master interrogator of prisoners. The isolation chamber, a device of his own invention, made his captives feel like they were buried alive. Although he had never failed to get the information he wanted, he yearned to find the one method that will break any man. Although the major told an inspecting colonel from Berlin that he'd rather be at the front, it was a lie. He had no battlefield ambitions. When the major's aide, a lieutenant, tried to congratulate him on his efficiency, the major told him not to be stupid. It's 1944, not 1941. Our armies are being defeated everywhere because our Fuhrer thinks of himself as a military genius. But the war isn't lost yet. There are still Germans who will not let it be lost. Remember that. And remember your place. You are my aide, not my equal. The lieutenant salutes, but seethes. He will remember. And pay the major back for his insults. July 20th, 1944. The major glances at his watch and smiles. Three o'clock. In a few minutes, it should be all over. Far away, a briefcase bomb explodes at a meeting being led by Adolf Hitler. Hours go by, and the Major continues his work until the Lieutenant rushes in. Major, have you heard the news? The Fuhrer is dead. Dead? The bomb killed him? When? 
The lieutenant can't conceal his shock. Bomb? You, you knew? You knew there was a plot to kill him? The major quickly covers his misstep by saying it was only a guess. But at least now the general staff can take over and win the war. And who knew how far a man of my talents able to pry information from spies and traitors can go? The next morning, the major is at his desk when the lieutenant storms in with two guards. When the major orders the aide to get back to his duties, the lieutenant says that he's given the orders now and orders his guards to arrest the major by order of the Fuhrer. The major's guards try to intervene. They are gunned down. The major is shocked. Hitler hadn't been killed, only wounded. And Berlin had found the lieutenant's report on the major's comments about Hitler's death most interesting. If the major knew about the bomb, he must also know who planted it. And he was going to tell the lieutenant everything. The major refuses, but unfortunately, the lieutenant had been an attentive pupil to the major's interrogation techniques. The major is whipped until he loses consciousness. Later, he is placed in, an, in his isolation chamber. The major refuses to talk, knowing the only thing he would get him would be the firing squad. I never found the ultimate torture, and neither will you. And unless you do, I'll never break. The lieutenant isn't a genius like the major, so he resorts to the old ways. Savage beatings of billy clubs. Days and nights pass and merge into one. The major suffers as his victims had suffered. He starves and freezes. He can't take much more, and he begs God for help. The lieutenant visits the major in his cell and promises a quick death if only the major would confess. Again, he refuses. The lieutenant tells the major to sleep well, and he leaves the cell. Maybe in a week he wouldn't be as stubborn. The major is at, his, at the end of his rope. Nazis don't believe in God. So the major swears his soul to the devil to escape. At that moment, the major realizes that the cell door is open. The latch hadn't clicked when the lieutenant had turned the key. It's impossible. The SS don't make these kinds of mistakes. As the major navigates his prison's halls, guards look right at him in his tattered uniform but don't react. It must be the devil's work. With the devil's help, the major will escape. The front gate is open, and the major runs right through it. The guards don't stop him as he flees into the tree line. He's almost blubbering with joy, but the butt of a Luger crashes across the back of the major's skull, sending him sprawling into the snow. It's the lieutenant and the guards. The major's whole escape had been a ploy to see if a quick taste of freedom would refresh the major's memory. Faced with returning to his cell, the major finally breaks. He tells the lieutenant everything. Later, blindfolded and tied to the execution post, the major begins to laugh. It's funny. I found it. I found the answer after all. Five rifles speak, and the major dies. How bitterly amusing that in the end, that torture that could break any man should be such a simple little thing called hope. Killjoy, History Minute. Although the January 20th attempt is the one that got the most publicity, from 1938 on, there were at least a dozen various attempts on Hitler's life. Defective bombs, changes of plans, and just plain bad luck kept bailing him out. His luck held true to form on July 20th. Operation Valkyrie. Two briefcase bombs were planned to be set at a meeting in a concrete bunker at the Wolfslayer. But circumstances moved the meeting to an above-ground cabin and necessitated the use of only one bomb instead of two, by Klaus von Stauffenberg, the one-armed man referenced but not named in the story, or in the synopsis. 
check the album. Von Stauffenberg had been strafed by Kitty Hawk fighters in Tunisia in 1943 and had lost his right eye and left hand. After placing the bomb, he excused himself to make a phone call. At the last minute, the briefcase was moved by another meeting attendee behind a heavy wooden table leg, which shielded Hitler from the worst of the blast. Three were killed and 20 injured. Only slightly wounded, a furious Hitler ordered the Gestapo to round up nearly everyone who had the remotest connection with the plot. More than 7,000 people were arrested and 4,980 were executed. Not all of them were connected to with the plot since the Gestapo used the occasion to settle scores with people suspected of opposition sympathies. Any number committed suicide to preserve their honor or cheat the executioner. The Desert Fox, Erwin Rommel, was implicated and chose that route. Von Stauffenberg was executed by firing squad the next day, age 36. Many of those executed were hung by piano wire, their deaths recorded for Hitler's enjoyment. For a quick overview, watch 2008's Valkyrie, starring Tom Cruise as Von Stauffenberg. Killjoy, page three, panel one. The major looks at his watch on July 20th and says, three o'clock, in a few minutes this should all be over. The bomb went off at 12.42, so either he was wrong or, as we know, Von Stauffenberg had to change things up on the fly. Also, it appears the swastika banner over his head is backwards, but the narration panel obscures most of it. Page three, panel four, the bomb goes off in a village, not in a cabin in a forested area. Comments and commendations. Another story where no one is given a name. In reality, the major no doubt would have gone through hells similar to those portrayed here and probably worse. Thanks, Comics Code Authority. He should consider himself lucky he didn't get the piano wire treatment. He was careless with his mouth and aroused suspicion with his aid. He may have been a master interrogator, but he was a lousy spy. I have to give Oleg some credit here. We've all had our hearts torn out when all hope leaves you. Love, sports, etc. It freaking sucks. But the Major hoped to save his life. When recaptured and knowing more torture awaited him, he gave up. Would we have done any better? As the title says, every man has his breaking point. As an aside master of alternate history, Robert Conroy wrote Himmler's War, which describes how the war in Europe may have played out if Hitler had been killed after D-Day and someone that knew the proper way to wage war was in charge. It got real bloody real fast for the Allies. Yeah, man, that, that history minute was was pretty awesome because I, I'll just pull out one detail that hit me as you were rereading it here for the recording. Like, I had no idea the Desert Fox went out like that. That was just completely new to me the whole freaking story is is amazing like all these all these attempts to assassinate hitler it's they kind of either i wasn't paying attention which is likely or they glossed over that in high school history but there you have it folks if you if you did the same thing as i did and tuned out and were drawing comics in the back of history class rich caught you up here so for my cnc i'm gonna say this was possibly the grimmest weird war tale yet i i wish i could have read this when i was like five years old would have saved decades of waiting to learn the exact same lesson the hard way hope is the worst form of torture there is got it ready for the rest of my life there we go adjusting expectations and hopping on the bus to kindergarten now for a spotlight here for the story i'll call out all of page three this page tells the story perfectly, even if you don't read any of the dialogue. The Major checks his watch. We see a meeting with Adolf, a ticking suitcase, nice circular spotlight panel work right there, and so on. The body language and facial expressions carry the tone of the conversations clearly, and even with 
all of this economy of visual storytelling, Ernie leaves plenty of space for the narrative captions and dialogue, all without leaving anything feeling the least bit crowded or cramped. It's a one-page textbook on how to lay out a comic book page, folks. This issue is off to a heck of a start, in my opinion. So we will see if the second story holds up to the high standards this one established. It is called The Hunted. And is eight pages long. Script is by our two buddies. Our script is by our buddy Robert Koniger, and art is by our other buddy Alfredo Alcala. Synopsis goes a little something like this: Whispers of the cover story. Lawrence of Arabia washes his hands at a desert oasis in sight of an ancient statue of Anubis. He's shocked to see a Turkish soldier in the water's reflection about to bayonet him. Lawrence pulls out a pistol from his robes and fires four times, killing the Turk and mortally wounding the Turk's lover that Lawrence hadn't seen in the reflection. As he tries to help the woman, she curses him. You have killed my lover and me. Before the eyes of Anubis, I curse you and leave you to the jackal-headed god's vengeance. Asleep or awake, night or day, Lawrence is then haunted by the remorseless eyes of Anubis. But the war goes on. The commandant of local Turkish forces, Hayim Ware Bey, leaves two of Lawrence's nomad allies hanging from a tree with a warning note attached to their bodies. Lawrence and his allies respond by attacking a Turk ammunition train on horseback. Lawrence destroys a machine gun mounted on the rearmost rail car with a grenade. More grenades destroy the train itself. Yeah, I'll teach him. Fading into the desert, Lawrence later gives tactical advice to his allies to avoid the furious Turks and is surprised to see a jackal pup enter the campsite. He gives the animal some water. We are all friends out here on the desert. We are all hunted. We must help each other. As the jackal pup trots out into the night, Lawrence implores the pup to speak well of him to Anubis. I have unwittingly incurred his wrath. Scouting a Turkish fort that night, Lawrence is suddenly pistol-whipped unconscious by a Turkish patrol. They immediately recognize their prize and bring him to Hayim Werbey. Not wanting to make a martyr out of Lawrence by killing him, Werbey instead has Lawrence savagely whipped. Send him back humiliated like a whipped dog, shamed, in disgrace, his invincibility shattered. His followers will shun him, their faith in him betrayed. Releasing Lawrence, the Englishman then crawls through the desert sand. The jackal pup finds him again. The enemy is right, he says to the pup. I have failed. I can never face my Arabs again. Anubis has avenged the girl I shot. The jackal slowly walks off, acting as if he wants Lawrence to follow him. Do you wish to give an outcast like me the hospitality of your lair for the water I gave you to drink? The jackal leads Lawrence to a secret tunnel guarded by a Turkish soldier. Lawrence kills the guard and goes inside. He's amazed to discover an ammunition storehouse directly under the Turkish fort. Lawrence quickly assembles a bomb lights the fuse, and runs with the jackal at his side. Where Bay sees Lawrence running through the desert with the jackal and laughs. The clown! History will soon forget him. But then, the ammo stockpile explodes, destroying the Turkish fort. Lawrence talks to his furry friend. Did you speak well of me to Anubis? 
Did he make me pay for shooting the girl then forgave me? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. I added that last part. Who's a good talking, little jackal pup? Who's yeah, a good he's little jackal pup? to a dog. You know he'd be using that voice. So that story ends, and Rich, as he does for every one of these stories in this episode, has a little something for you. Oh, yes. Colonel Thomas Edward T.E. Lawrence was a British archaeologist, army officer, diplomat, and writer who became renowned for his role in the Arab Revolt, 1916-1918, and the Sinai and Palestine Campaign, 1915-1918, against the Ottoman Empire, Turkey, during the First World War. The breadth and variety of his activities and associations and his ability to describe them vividly in writing earned him international fame as Lawrence of Arabia, a title he used for the 1962 film based on his wartime activities, starring Alec Guinness. May the force be with you. Soon after the outbreak of war in 1914, he volunteered for the British Army and was stationed at the Arab Bureau Intelligence Unit in Egypt. In 1916, he traveled to Mesopotamia and to Arabia on intelligence missions and became involved with the Arab Revolt as a liaison to the Arab forces, along with other British officers, supporting the Arab Kingdom of Hejaz's independence war against its former overlord, the Ottoman Empire. He worked closer with Emir Faisal, a leader of the revolt, and he participated, sometimes as leader, in military actions against the Ottoman armed forces, accumulating in the capture of Damascus in October 1918. As told in the story, in November 1917, he was captured by Turkish forces while reconnoitering behind enemy lines. He was tortured and sexually abused before escaping. I guess they couldn't show that part in 1974. Thanks, Comics Code Authority. After the First World War, Lawrence joined the British Foreign Office, working with the British government and with Faisal. In 1922, he retreated from public life and spent the years until 1935 serving as an enlisted man, mostly in the Royal Air Force, the brief period in the Army. During this time, he published his best-known work, Seven Pillars of Wisdom, in 1926, an autobiographical account of his participation in the Arab Revolt. Lawrence's public image resulted in part from the sensationalized reporting of the Arab Revolt by American journalist Lowell Thomas, as well as from Seven Pillars of Wisdom. In 1935, Lawrence was fatally injured in a motorcycle accident in Dorset at the age of 46, where he was buried. The band Sabaton has a song about Lawrence named after his book. I'll post the video. Killjoy, page three, panel four and five. Lawrence throws a grenade on horseback forward towards a train that's going in the same direction as he is. Unless he's Babe Ruth, remember, he was a pitcher in this era before he was a hitter. He's much more likely to miss and run over the same grenade on his horse. That would be unpleasant. Page 8, panel 2, as Lawrence runs away from the bomb. Man, that is an unnatural pose. Is he running, dancing, or about to fall down? Or is his post-war work going to include a position in the Ministry of Silly Walks? I mean, that was before the uh, slightly censored torture, right? So that wasn't like an effect on his gait from his recent experiences. <laughs> oh, man. So, yeah, I, I got to say, dude, a lot of that, again, was completely outside my experience or knowledge. But damn, whoo, they, uh, they, they, they certainly gave him uh, a working over there. Holy crap. So pushing that out of my mind, I will move on to CNC here. I'll kick it off and I'll say this was a simple but well-told little tale of karma. Lawrence did wrong, was punished for it, 
but also forgiven for it afterward due to the kindness he had shown beforehand. This kind of test by the gods, with the deity disguised in a lesser form, a beggar, a stranger seeking shelter, or a small animal as used here, are common fodder in myths from all around the world, and this one fits in perfectly with all the rest. I liked it. As you may have guessed, I really like every drawing of the jackal cub on page five. Alcala really captures the anatomy and body language of the little guy, showing how timid and then appreciative the creature was as it entered and exited the scene. Of course, on page two, that final panel is just incredibly well done, with Lawrence and his people coming up or coming upon a hanging corpse and a warning with that epically rendered backdrop behind them. The top three panels on that same page, however, feature my one disappointment with this whole story. Those are the eyes of Anubis? Really? So basically a pair of headlights? Come on, Fredo. That aside, this was another great little story. I'm a happy camper so far. Some of Alcala's best work has been in issues set in the desert. This is no different. Page four, panel one of the Turkish soldiers dying in the rail car. And page six, panel two, where Lawrence is reconning the Turkish fort with the sun shining through the clouds are both stellar. Page five, panel five. Work with me here. Doesn't Lawrence look like Judge Reinhold? Check the album for comparison shots. As an aside, Reinhold has an uncredited appearance in the Pat Benatar video, Shadows of the Night, which I obviously dearly love. He's the one wearing the red hat. I'll post the video. Great art. Great story. Conagher and Alcala. Of course it is. Yeah, so. it took me, uh, sorry, man. It, it took me like a nanosecond looking at the panel that you called out to be like, oh, that's dead on. That, that could be total <laughs> ref. I, I don't think that could possibly be an accident. I look a lot like him. So kudos well, for no that Well, Judge Reinhold was, was in 1974. That's that's just purest of, of coincidences, obviously. How old was Judge Reinhold in 1974? What, nine? <laughs> I don't know. Time travel be damned. Uh, maybe his dad was in something and looks like him. Because it is eerie, dude. I mean, maybe we haven't seen Judge Reinhold in a while because he's, you know, he's, he's back in time. Age. Yeah, he's, he's, he's back in time, you know, saving the world and whatnot. Who knows? But that out of the way, um, again, two stories in a row for this issue were fantastic. We're going to let Rich tell us if it's a hat trick with the third and final story in the issue. The Phantom Bowman of Cressy. Short one, four pages. Script by Jack Olet, art by Jerry Teleoc. Cressy, France, 1346. The English knights are being overwhelmed. If the French knights charge, the battle is lost. One of the English lords pleads to Edward III to employ his longbowmen against the French. The weapon has never been tested in battle. The idea is madness, but as King Philip's knights begin their charge, Edward has no choice. England's fate rests with the bowmen, and they swear an oath never to rest so long as a single enemy threatens England. The longbow's range far exceeds anything the French have, and the hillside soon runs red with noble blood. Finally, the French knights break, and the English knights pursue. England is saved. 1916. The enemy isn't French, but England is in great peril again at Cressy. A rolling artillery barrage hammers British positions, presaging an overwhelming attack by German infantry. It's an entire division. Only a miracle can keep the entire line from collapsing. 
almost on cue, a ghostly line of ancient English bowmen, a hundred feet tall, appears in front of the British positions. The Jerry see them too, and they panic. As they fall back, the British counterattack and win a stunning victory. In the history books, a few words say simply that in the year 1916, the British army won a great victory in Cressy. And it's true, they did. And yet, thousands of men on both sides saw the bowmen of Cressy. That day, there is no question of that. So who was to say? Who really won that victory? Was it an army of worn and battered British Tommies? Or was it a thin line of men who had been dead 500 years? What would you say? Killjoy. It's always, uh, it's always nice when Rod stops by. <laughs> it's very good to hear from him again. So, well, uh, I'm always looking for like opening panels and panels where I, where I can do that. And I'm like, aha, here we go. I, I got it. <laughs> we were overdue for one. Okay. On August 22nd, 23rd, 1914, the first major engagement of the British Expeditionary Force in the First World War occurred at the Battle of Mons. Advancing German forces were thrown back by heavily outnumbered British troops who suffered heavy casualties and, being outflanked, were forced into rapid retreat the next day. The retreat and battle were rapidly perceived by the British public as being a key moment in the war. On September 29, 1914, the Welsh author Arthur Macken published a short story entitled The Bowman in the English News, inspired by accounts of, that he had read of the fighting at Mons and an idea he had had soon after the battle. Machen, who had already written some factual articles on the, uh, on the conflict for the paper, set his story at the time of the retreat from the Battle of Moors in August 1914. The story described phantom bowmen from the Battle of Agincourt in 1415, summoned by a soldier calling on St. George, destroying a German host. So it's not even Chrissy, it's Agincourt, and the 500 years line works a hell of a lot better here. Action's story was not, however, labeled as fiction. And the same story of the evening news ran a story by a different author under the heading, Our Short Story. Mackin's story was written from a first-hand perspective and was kind of a false document, a technique Mackin knew well. The unintended result was that Mackin had a number of requests to provide evidence for his sources for the story soon after its publication from readers who thought that it was true, to which he responded it was completely imaginary as he had no desire to create a hoax. A month or two later, Mackin received requests from the editors of Parish magazines to reprint a story, which were granted. In the introduction to The Bowman and Other Legends of the War, 1915, Mackin relates to that an unnamed priest, the editor of one of these magazines, subsequently wrote to him asking if he would allow the story to be reprinted in pamphlet form, and if he would write a short preface giving sources for the story. Mackin replied that they were welcome to reprint, but he could not give any sources for the story since he had none. The priest replied, Mackin must be mistaken, that the facts of the story must be true, and Machen had just elaborated on a true account. As Machen later said, it seemed my light fiction had been accepted by the congregation of this particular church as the solidest of facts, and it was then that it began to dawn on me that if I had failed in the art of letters, I had succeeded, unwittingly, in the art of deceit. This happened, I should think, sometime in April, and the snowball of rumor that was then sent rolling has been rolling ever since, growing bigger and bigger, till it's now swollen to monstrous size. Variations of the story began to appear, told as authentic histories, including that an account that told how the corpses of German soldiers had been found on the battlefield with arrow wounds. Over time, the bowmen evolved into angels. 
being used as proof of the action of divine providence on the side of the allies in the sermons across Britain, and then spreading into newspaper reports published widely across the world. Machen, bemused by all this, attempted to end the rumors by republishing the story in August in book form, with a long preface stating the rumors were false and originated in his story. It became a bestseller and resulted in the vast series of other publications claiming to provide evidence of the angel's existence. Machen tried to cite the record straight, but any attempt to lessen the impact of such an inspiring story was seen as bordering on treason by some. These new publications included popular songs and artists' renderings of the angels. There were more reports of angels and apparitions from the front, including Joan of Arc. Yeah, I, I could go on and on, but safe to say the whole story was fabricated. Cressy and Agincourt is in France, and Mons is in Belgium. The legend took place at Mons in 1914, not 1916. At page three, panel three, Look cl real close at the attacking Germans. There's a swastika bear in there. <laughs> Wrong. No problem with pickle helm helmets in August 1914, obviously, but 1916 would be wrong. C&C, &C, the only truly weird story in the comic. I found one of the period newspaper photo renditions of the story and have included it in the album. Max commented once that when we run out of weird war tales, we could just keep the show going by me telling weird war stories that I've heard. I knew about this one, but didn't know the depths of the creation of the legend until I researched the history minute here. It's really too bad that all the places and dates are wrong. Crazy, Agincourt, Mons, 1914, 1916, etc. It really detracts from an otherwise great story. Yeah, and I just got a comment on the History Minute and Killjoy. Um, it's just such a powerful testament to how people are just going to believe what they want to believe, even if the person whose story they're repeating, like, vehemently tells them, I made it all up. It's out of your hands. They're just going to create their own reality. I, I, you know, it's just a good thing that this is the kind of thing that only happened in the past and isn't a problem we're dealing with in the present in the United States of America in 2022. We, we've grown beyond all that. So, you know, whew, lucky we dodged that bullet. Anyway, uh, for my CNC, I'm going to say this one was okay, but it felt a bit pinched to me. Yes, I know it was a four-pager, but with these talents behind the wheel, even a four-pager should feel better paced than this one did. It was still a heck of a lot better than the Day After Doomsday page fillers, and the art was fantastic, so I'll give the slightly off pacing a break. What I won't let slide is the bad word balloon placement in the splash panel. The way the balloons are arranged and the way the dialogue is written, it looks like two random soldiers in the back of the fray are calling each other Lord and Liege in turn, while the guy who was actually the leader up front is saying nothing. Great drawing, though. As is the battle scene at the end of page two, and big props to the final panel with the skeletal narrator holding up a bow and a rifle. Really dug that. I have my nitpicks naturally, but this was still a fun one. So... All the stories out of the way. We got the main part of the issue dealt with. We're going to move on to the APO Weird War Tales. And for my letter spotlighted in this issue's letters column, I'm going to go with Breck Brizendine from Mooresville, Indiana. That's a heck of a name, first of all. And his letter goes a little something like this. Dear Joe, you know, I've never really been a fan of war stories because I'm what you'd call and stereotype as a pacifist. However, for some reason, I bought Weird War Tales number 24. You know what? I liked it. 
Let's take the first story. The Invisible Enemy has good artwork aided by decent balloon placement. Ha <laughs> ha Balloon placement like I was just complaining about. Open balloons make me enjoy any story more. The script was first rate, although a touch confusing in spots. The Last Battle, fantastic. How original. I don't think I've ever read a story quite as well thought out and well executed as this one. And Alex Nino's art, if that's a sample of what's to come, you've got a permanent reader. So yet another not a war comics reader convert, which I'd like to say this was my entry into war comics. Weird war tales dragged me in by throwing in monsters and ghosts and stuff in the supernatural. And that was my bridge to reading war comics. So it's just cool to see once again, I'm not alone out there. So that is my spotlighted letter. Mine is by Steve Clement from Pawtucket, Rhode Island. Steve, uh, Max's neck of the woods. Dear Joe, your Weird War Tales continues to be one of the more original books on the market. I like the stories you present in the book, but would much prefer a book length every other issue. Written by one writer, but possibly, I don't know what the hell that word is, by two or three artists. Jack Olick, one of the best storytellers in the business, took a story with little, if any, plotline and made it both readable and gripping. Ernie Chua? Well, as an artist, he's good, but as an inker, he's even better. Second story, I'll look again. Good, but a visual expert like Nino is not half the storyteller someone like Akala is. He draws beautifully, but the story sacrifices a lot to the artwork. We all have our weak spots. I notice you are again pleading for letters at the bottom of the letter column. Why? You can't have that apathetic a fandom, can you? And Joe responds with, actually, our fandom is very apathetic to the point that the five letters on this page represent virtually all the ones we received this month. So get moving, Raiders, right? <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. Uh, that word <laughs> is something that this that, that this writer from Rhode Island here made up. It's trying to sound hip. It's called what? illode. Yep. So they're trying to say illustrated oh. by, two, uh, by these many different artists, but they went illode because like there's some reason for making up your own slang on the fly in print. Yeah, just just dumb, but you know, there you go. Apathetic readership, yeah, yeah. That's, I mean, something else we don't have in the United States of America in 2022. No, no, and not (laughs) on this show either. We are just swamped with emails and and stuff. Kind of, sort of. Well, we'll get to that. But (laughs) with the letters page out of the way, we're gonna move on to this issue's spotlighted ads, and Rich has got a good one right on the top. Miracle Vision Cross wears pendant, necklace, or charm. Miraculously projects amazing concealed vision of heavenly angels and complete Lord's Prayer. Marvelous, inspirational view. Cross set with brilliant simulated diamonds, 18-inch chain, beautiful silver finish. Is this blasphemous or am I reading too much into it? I look at this my mind wanders and... Yeah. No, just... Yeah. No. Out. <laughs> what's a little blasphemy when we've got like you know the devil helping someone survive and get out of prison except no we didn't and then maybe in that story Giant angels the battle of mods i mean agincourt i mean fred cressy <laughs> yeah yeah and like and like you were talking about all the times hitler dodged death i'm like well hey maybe uh the devil wasn't helping the character in this story but it looks like he was helping somebody else for a bit there so yeah you know blasphemy smash for me it's weird war tales so, you need a little blasphemy. Yeah, yeah, what the heck? You're in the right place, you know? So I am going to cheat, of course, and I got two ads. 
real quick here, but except I won't be. From that same Johnson Smith Company page, we have a Planet of the Apes mask, right out of Hollywood, professionally made to resemble makeup used in Planet of the Apes movies. Realistic in every detail. Covers full head. Realistic hair over entire head. Swollen red lips. Facial warts. Flattened nose. Deep set eyes. Clings when worn. Eat, laugh, talk. The mouth are thin, molded latex rubber. Now, all that certainly sounds bad enough, especially with facial warts being a detail for some reason when it's supposed to be mimicking Planet of the Apes. But the picture that accompanies this thing looks like something we referred to in a previous episode, a shrunken head that has had the heck beaten out of it behind a bar somewhere with only a few teeth in the bottom of the mouth showing. And yeah, I'm just going to glaze over how they mention swollen lips and a flattened nose on an ape's mask. I'm going to let that go right by and just say that this thing looks terrible and would probably suffocate and poison you. It just looks awful. And it jumped right out at me. And then there was this. There's a there's a nice full page ad that, that it's all in yellow and it says TV Magic Limited presents three special offers by Marshall Brodian as seen on TV trick decks. And there's these trick decks of cards, miracle cards, marked cards, X-ray, rising TV magic, mystery cards. Basically, they're selling you cards that you can do card tricks with. And supposedly this dude was on TV known famous in some capacity. They, they hawk a couple of other tricks on the same page, a couple of other magic trick things. It's just a glaringly spare-looking, amateur-looking ad, but my favorite part is the floating head of Marshall Brodian with his gigantic bow tie and little, like, explosion of, of drawn cartoon fanfare behind him. It's just floating by with a with a really sinister-looking, creepy smile on his face presiding over the whole affair. I'm afraid to look into this dude because I, I just wonder how many crimes he eventually was imprisoned for. And, and just the, the whole ad is just mystifying to me. So it I kind of looks a little bit like Captain Kangaroo. <laughs> a little bit. Like, like a Captain Kangaroo shaved his stash. He's a little younger. Maybe that's who he is. I don't know. But I I just couldn't stop looking at this ad. I mean, the Planet of the Apes mask was really my spotlight, but I just couldn't let this episode pass without mentioning this thing. So I'd just like to add a comment. When you look at this ad, this is probably why we occasionally need like six tired of getting your ass kicked, Billy, ads in one issue because they but we're like, hey, that guy brought these cards to school. Watch me do card tricks like Marshall Brodian. And then bam, 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 bam. <laughs> you know? And then all of a sudden they're 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 right into Charles Atlas. So there we go. Spotlighted ads are out of the way. We're gonna move on to the part of the show we like to call Got Any Last Words. And my last words are it's the most educational episode of the show yet, people. But I'm supposed to talk about the comic book here and not the show, so fine. As for the issue itself, it was great. Two really good stories, followed by a fun and breezy, but great-looking filler, some fun ads, and a more or less full-size letters page. I'm good. I'll pick The Hunted as my fave, because it makes me feel less depressing existential dread than the first story. And it has a cute jackal puppy in it. Who's a good issue of Weird War Tales? You are. Yes, you are. <laughs> I'm going to do that as many times as I possibly can. <laughs> so, there you go. There's my last words. 
Uh, holy history minute, Batman. I went three for three and tossed one into the Intel report to boot. An issue like this that makes me spend almost as time, almost as much time doing research as it does writing the synopsis is certainly one I can get behind. Despite the fact Olek did a lousy job on Phantom Bowman, I still narrowly have to call it my favorite. Great issue all around. This could easily have been one of those Ripley's Believe It or Not war comics that are out. By Gold Key, we might do one of them in a special mission, too. I'm all for the Gold Key books. I just got a big shipment of those from a buddy of mine on Twitter, too. Uh, Bill at Spy Vinyl. People who follow my other account on Twitter have seen these books, and there were some some Twilight Zones in there, some ghost stories, some really cool-looking stuff. So I'm always down for a Gold Key episode. With the last words out of the way, we're coming to the final part of the episode, people. A place we like to call the Dead Letter Office. Now, I'm going to let Rich read a little part of this. Um, we don't we don't normally get around to that often because it doesn't happen that often, and Rich is the <laughs> only one looking. And uh, we, we, got, we got some reviews on Apple Podcasts, didn't we? Two more five-star reviews. Bucky749 returns and says, thanks for reading my review. I was so excited. I told all my friends at work about the show and how great it is. Keep up the good work and I'll keep listening. Till then, I promise to make war no more. Oh, thank you, Bucky749. And Jason, the comic fan, weighs in. These guys are the best. Max and Rich have great camaraderie and bring a balanced approach to one of the best comic series ever. Thanks, guys. Boy, glad we made two guys happy. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go ahead and guess that Jason the comic fan is Jason Zeller. But uh, <laughs> just going to throw that out there. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm like an amateur genius detective over here. So there wasn't a lot going on on Twitter and, and Facebook and all that because we're in the summer slowdown and we're in between episodes. But we did just the other day get something and on Gmail in the weird warriors podcast at gmail.com section here our buddy mike stewart from the save for half podcast which doesn't have a twitter presence makes me hard to tag you guys you know come on but mike stewart writes in and says hey guys a quick question do you plan to cover that haunted tank miniseries from the 2000s rich's description of j of jeb stewart's descendant being a black tank commander sounds really interesting keep up the good work mike in texas and yeah I'd, of course i'd be down for that i'm pretty sure that's on rich's special mission radar well usually my personal opinion as far as the special missions are concerned is i want them to be like one shots and and this is a miniseries so I don't want to invest too much time into a miniseries because it's hard to do it, you know, like six comics, what justice in our podcast episode. Yeah, this so, one's not an anthology. So I, I feel like if we did hit it, we could just sum up issue one and then you could give a brief like we could give a brief impression of the rest of the series at the end and how we felt it landed and we could treat the first issue. But we could talk about that. Back at HQ. Yeah, um, I mean, the, the great, that, that is why, you know, we do the whole Intel report is just because we want to get like themed comics out to the general public because this has got to be assembled in a, in, a, in a graphic novel format, you know, somewhere. I mean, there's one panel in like, like, like second page or something like that, third page, just a great piece of artistry. It's just like, a, I think it was like an IED blew up right next to the Abrams and it knocked the tank crew out. There's a bunch of insurgents, you know, surging in on the tank and technicals, you know, trucks with mounted machine guns in the back and stuff like that. 
the general materializes behind the turret-mounted 50 and opens up. You have a picture of Jeb Stewart blasting away with a 50 cal. I cannot express how awesome that panel is. I'll put, I'll put it, I'll tell you what, I'll put it in the, in the album. <laughs> it's a great, great miniseries. You, you, you gotta, you gotta go check it out. Well, that does sound cool, but Mike, you heard it. Uh, Rich says no, because he is mean and doesn't care what the listeners want to hear about. So there's your answer. And, yeah, I'm, yeah, that's good, it. I, and, and, <laughs> and I'm the good guy here. So, okay. <laughs> with, okay. My, my mind just exploded because Max said he was the good guy. I just, I, I am. In this specific context, because I do the editing. And with the dead letter office out of the way, we're going to let mean old Rich give you the teaser for the next episode. Beard War Tales number 30? Because 30 comes after 29, and we just did a special mission. Killer Bishops, you're drafted. It's a wonderful life, is it? Is it, though? Tune in next time for all the mystery, madness, and mayhem, if you dare. I don't know if I dare. So, (laughs) that's the episode, folks. This has been the Weird Warriors podcast. We have been the Weird Warriors and the Batlam Bros, and we promise to make war. No more. (laughs) 